0: You've probably heard the phrase "one man's trash is another man's treasure," right? That's that's something you're familiar with, and and many of you probably put that into practice by uh, getting other people's trash. As as many opportunities as you have to do that, you look for that, you know, so you can get some treasures from other people's trash. Uh, we know all about that, you know, yard sales and and. Uh, all those types of things, thrift stores. Uh, we like we like that as a as a society, as a culture, we're all about it. Uh, you know, there's there's entire TV shows that that highlight that whole practice of trying to glean treasure from what uh, other people have considered trash. And sometimes you're able to find some some pretty valuable things, right? If you look hard enough, if you have uh, the willingness to put in that time and that effort, and exhaust yourself to do that. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I've, I find that incredibly exhausting and stressful, but hey, go for it if that's your thing. Um, one time, I mean, it might pay off, because one time a uh, there was a person that found an old Nintendo video game uh, in the attic of his childhood home as he was trying to do that very thing, gather what he would consider junk or trash to try to sell it and see what could come from it. Well, he found this uh, this unopened video game From the early 80s, it was actually Kid Icarus for the original Nintendo system, and he found it. It was obviously one of those presents that the parents had uh, hidden away and forgotten about. You know what what that's like, you know. Um, And the attic is a good place for those kinds of things. And so he finds this, and he thinks, well, this is pretty neat. And so he has it appraised and was able to sell it for $9,000. So maybe this afternoon... Just putting that out there. Uh, A British family learned that an old wooden chess piece that they had in their house for years, just sat collecting dust, uh, was actually worth $1.2 million. So don't discount an old ugly wooden chess set. Uh, There was a, a mall in Milwaukee that was set to be demolished in 2001, and a maintenance worker was cleaning things out before that happened he found a pair of Air Jordan sneakers from the 80s, and they turned out to have actually been worn and signed by Sir Ernest himself, Michael Jordan himself. And they had at one time been on display at a sports store in the mall there. This sports store had a a practice of, of highlighting shoes that had actually been worn by famous athletes, and so he remembered seeing those shoes there in the window. And uh, he, he found them, he got them, and they appraised for $20,000. So, yeah, uh, one man's trash may indeed be another man's treasure. Uh, we're, we're really good about discounting things and discrediting things. We're, we're unfortunately really good at just saying, oh, that's, that's just not valuable to me anymore, or finding less value in things than we should. Uh, we have this tendency as people to uh, be hasty, you know, in, in, uh, in discounting things and discrediting things and uh, having a, a low estimation of something's value. And it's, with that in mind, the, the seeing something valuable as not valuable and just something to be discarded and rejected because it really isn't going to be that important to me, that's it's really... Uh, kind of the the thought and the structure of the passage we're looking at today as we resume our series, Peculiar People. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and, and I think as we go in through this, you're going to see how how apparent that connection is uh, with the, the concept of uh, someone saying, this is just junk, and this is just trash, and I'm just going to get rid of it. But in doing so, actually discarding something of incredible value, something that should have been treasured. You're going to see that connection as we go through this this text. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. But before we dig into those uh, verses, let's first just briefly review the previous two verses in this passage in in chapter 2 that we ended with before we took that little break last week. Verses 2 and 3, Peter writes this, "...like newborn infants long..." crave desire for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good so those are the the previous verses where peter says look i, I know I know that you are in Christ. Him saying, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's not, he's not really calling that into question. He's, he's using really a literary device there to say, uh, because this is true, uh, I, I am right in assuming this. I know this about you. You have tasted that the Lord is good. And so that's what you need to do. You need to continue craving that pure spiritual milk that comes from the word of the Lord that you know to be good. Keep Keep pursuing that, keep craving that, keep desiring that, keep desiring Him, because you've already tasted, you've experienced that the Lord is indeed good. With that in mind, verse 4 continues to build on that thought. Verse 4 says, as you come to Him, as you come to the Lord that you know is good, that you have tasted and experienced His goodness, as you come to Him, Father, I pray that as we look into this text, this passage, that we would, by your Spirit, have our minds opened to realizing, first, how truly precious and of infinite worth your Son is. May we see him truly as precious May he be precious to us, more precious to us today than, than he was even when we came into this place together. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. I pray that he would illuminate this text, illuminate our hearts and our minds, open our understanding, help us to understand what Peter is trying to convey and to express. And may we also heed the warning that is included in this passage. So please speak to us, lead us, and direct our thoughts. Help us to make the appropriate application of what we read together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So going back to this passage, let's just uh, go through this and unpack uh, the riches that are in here that, that the Apostle Peter writes. And this this passage, uh, this section of the passage, verses 4-8, through eight, really they make up kind of this summary statement, Christ the cornerstone. Christ the cornerstone is, is really the summary of, of this, uh, focus on these verses. So verse four, Peter says, as you come to him, the, the Lord that is good, as you come to him, you're coming to one that is a living stone. A living stone. That's an interesting, uh, way of referring to Jesus, don't you think? a living stone. So what does Peter mean by that? Well, a stone is something that's strong and it's, it's secure. It's lasting, right? It's permanent. Uh, it's not going anywhere. You can rely on it. You can depend on it. It's, it's heavy. There's weight to it. There's substance to it. And certainly Jesus is that, but he's not just any stone. This is not like a, a monument or a memorial that we we definitely can relate to. We understand that people put monuments, places, a monument stone or memorial stone to mark someone's life that was important, someone that did something significant. It's to mark a a significant occurrence, monuments or memorials. We're familiar with that practice and even setting stones uh, in that way. And that's not something that's limited to like a a graveyard or a cemetery. I mean, there's all all kinds of memorial type stones or monuments that are 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 uh, are heavy and permanent and and big and uh, something that we look at as as being a a constant reminder of something that's important. And that certainly is true, but Jesus is a living stone. He's not just a monument to look back on and remember what had been done or, or the historical significance. He's not just a memorial stone that we look back and, and think fondly of his life. No, he is an active stone. Jesus is living. He's active. Death didn't defeat him. And as the stone was rolled away from his tomb, he became forever a living and an active stone, a source of refuge, a source of stability unlike any other. He'll never fade. He'll never crumble. He is the one sure foundation for all of life. And so, Christian, you've come to him. Peter is saying, you've come to him a living, an active stone, a source of stability that you're not going to find anywhere else, a refuge that will hold up in the midst of every storm. And isn't it great to know that we have that same ability to come to this living stone, that this was not limited to the audience that Peter originally was addressing? This isn't just a a first century reality. This is a reality in every century. Everyone that comes to Christ comes to one that is living and active. A living, powerful rock in your life. And we need that every single day. Because there's nothing out here in life and in the world that can offer what Christ can offer. We'll never find the security and the stability and the refuge and the strength that Jesus alone provides. As you come to him, a living stone, notice what Elsa said, rejected by men, tragic but but true. We know that that's exactly what happened. John one eleven tells us that he, Jesus, came to his own, to his own people, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. He came to those that he had made. He came in the likeness of human flesh, taking on humanity He even came as a Jewish person to the Jewish nation, but they rejected him. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious, like the most precious stone you you can think of, the most incredible gem, the rarest of all precious stones. That's that's what Jesus uh, was to the Father who sent Him. He sent Him as chosen. He sent Him as precious. Think of when uh, God the Father on numerous occasions said, This is my beloved Son. I'm, in, I'm well pleased in Him. He, he, is, he is full of my favor. He's precious. And He is to be precious to us. Even though He will not always be or, or not be precious by everyone, in fact, He continues to be rejected by men, tragically. But that doesn't take away any aspect of the fact that he is precious and unique and chosen. So as you come to him, this this living stone, this Lord who is good that you have experienced, he says this as a result of you coming to him. Verse 5, you yourselves. So you've come to the one who is a living stone, the living stone, now he says, you yourselves like living stones. So we are connected as we come to him who is a living stone. We are ourselves made living stones. And that's the only way that we are. We are able to participate in what Jesus provides. We're able to, to be uh, little stones Connected to the stone, and as he is a living and an active stone, the source of of continual stability and continued um, support and refuge and and strength, we are able to be that also to other people. Isn't that incredible? That we've come to the one who is the living, the ultimate stone, the great spiritual rock. And, and as we come to Him, we are made into that. We're not that on our own. In fact, we're, we're everything but what you can think of a stone, uh, being. We're naturally, humanly speaking, we're, we're not strong in ourselves. We, we aren't able to be a constant source of stability. In fact, we lack stability most of the time in our lives. You know that's true. It's true of you, it's true of me. Uh, naturally speaking, we're anything but a stone. But as we come to the one who is the living stone, Jesus, He makes us to be living stones as well. So you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. You could also uh, see this as being inserted you're, you're these these living stones, these special stones, as, as Jesus is precious in the sight of the Father, through him, through Jesus, we too are precious stones. And we're being built up or inserted, put together as a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? What's another word for that? Temple. Right? Temple. We know that Paul tells us that we are the temple of the living God. When when you come in here, you're all gathered here today on Sunday morning. You didn't come into a temple. You, the temple, came into this building. You are what makes this special and sacred. It's not it's not the, the building itself, as beautiful as this building is, and wonderful as it is as, that we get to worship in such a, a structure. This is not what is sacred. You, as a Christian, are the temple of the living God because of the Holy Spirit in you. And when Peter says that that you're being built up as a spiritual house, he's referring to that very thought and that very fact. So often, um, Peter and Paul are on just the same wavelength. You know, they're they're sailing in the same wind. They're together, uh, as you would hope would be the case. And and side note, that's another way you can trust the Word of God, Christian. The Word of God supports itself. The Word of God speaks of itself, and, and it, it provides coordination and connection. That's one thing that sets it apart. And that's what we see here. Uh, it's the very same concept that Paul expresses. Peter is saying that. That's what happens. You've come to the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you've seen, you've experienced how precious he is. Now you yourselves are, are like living stones by, because of your connection to him and you're being built up, you're being inserted and put together as this great glorious spiritual house, a temple. And that is exactly what happened with the old, the old temple, the original temple. Uh, there were choice stones they, they, it wasn 't just random or or things thrown together there were There was choice stones that had been looked at and surveyed and examined and found to be pure and good and They took those choice precious stones and they fitted them together just. So in in this this perfect way think of like a like lego blocks just snapping together and fitting together as they should that's how the temple stones were built it wasn't random it was it was very coordinated it was very deliberate and that's the imagery that peter is using here and certainly his jewish audience would have picked up on that right away but he's saying this isn't something that's limited to the old, physical, literal temple, and this isn't something that's limited to the Jewish people. Remember, he was writing to Christians that would have been Gentile believers too. He was, he was writing certainly to the Jewish believers that were dispersed throughout Asia Minor, but he was also writing to Gentile believers as well. And he's saying you you together you are being built up as the spiritual house as a temple of God himself to be a holy priesthood. You see how that fits together? Where where do priests serve? They serve in a temple. That's what you look for. You look for priests in a temple doing the work of serving. And that's where, they, that's where they're found, and that's what he's saying. You are you're, you're built up as a spiritual house, as a temple, but you're also the priest serving in that temple. You're built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a set-apart priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, not literal, physical sacrifices. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus Christ was the once-for-all sacrifice. He was the, the ultimate Passover lamb. So we don't physically sacrifice animals anymore. That picture has been fulfilled. But as a holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What, what are spiritual sacrifices? They encompass a lot. Uh, one is what we've done today, worship. Worship is a spiritual sacrifice. Uh, giving, we've done that today. That is a spiritual sacrifice. When we, when we give of resources that we have. Serving is a spiritual sacrifice. Serving God and, and serving others, and as you're serving others, you're serving God. Um, sharing the truth of the gospel is a spiritual sacrifice. Prayer is a spiritual sacrifice. Uh, rejecting sin, choosing righteousness and choosing Jesus over self, That's a spiritual sacrifice. So that is what's to mark the believer. We've come to the living stone. We ourselves are now made living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house, the temple of God within us, not because of anything about us, but because of Jesus Christ. He's made us a temple where the Holy Spirit, God himself dwells, and we are to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. That's who and what you are, Christian. Isn't that astounding? I mean, you know who you are. You know what you are. You know what you're like. I know what I'm like. On my best day, naturally, humanly speaking, I don't fit any of that. Do you? And yet, that is what is true of us. That's your identity. If you're in Christ, that's what he's made true of you. That is your reality. I want to also focus on this, uh, this phrase that you see in verse 5 where Peter says, you're being built up as a spiritual house, which is the result of being the living stones. I've already elaborated on that, you know, that the stones fit together. They piece together to form the structure of the temple. There's that imagery. That's what we are spiritually. But I want to focus on that a little bit more. The living stones that we are being built up as this spiritual house, as the temple, as the church. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus had been with his disciples and and he stopped them and he said, So, you know, we've been doing ministry now for a while. Uh, This was pretty close to him uh, going to Jerusalem. His, His earthly ministry was drawing to a close. The cross wasn't that far off. And he said, who do people say I am? You know, you're, you're out among the people. You hear what they're saying about me. Who do people say I am? And they, they gave different answers. And then Peter, in a, uh, what is a rare moment of saying the right thing quickly, he said, in Matthew 16, uh, verse 16, Simon Peter replied You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for, for centuries. You're the one prophesied. You're the one we all were looking to. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which also showed his divinity. You're not just any Messiah. You're the divine Messiah that was prophesied. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, not on you, Peter the rock, on the rock of your statement about me, on the rock of the truth about me that you are seeing, that you just expressed the fact that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, on that rock I will build my church Ecclesia. That is a called out assembly, a peculiar people, a holy thing, a set apart assembly. I will build my church on that truth. That's the stone on which I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So take that from Matthew 16 and apply it, see, connect it to to what is uh, being said here in 1 Peter 2.5. You see that connection? You are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, which is exactly what Jesus said he would do. So, of course, Peter was thinking back to that, to that statement, to that conversation. And he's saying, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. Jesus did what he said he would do. He built his church. He is building it. He's, he's active as the living stone. He's actively building his spiritual house. And he's using you to do it. Just like he said he would do. And the same is true for you today. Church, let's be very careful that we don't build the church, this church, on anything other than the rock that is Jesus Christ. He is what we need to build on, and He alone. Then Peter elaborates on this, and, and he uses Scripture to support what he's saying and to highlight the fact that Jesus is this unique, rare, precious, powerful stone unlike anyone else. First Peter 2.6, he says, For it stands in Scripture. In other words, this isn't just my opinion. This isn't just my perspective. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Then verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. In other words, you who agree with that, you who see Jesus as what he is, this cornerstone on which everything else is built the cornerstone is the foundation of the building and he's saying so if you agree with that you believe that you see him as he is the cornerstone chosen and precious you've believed in him this promise is for you he's saying so the honor is for you who believe and and who accept that and receive that but for those who do not believe Here's another quote from the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118.22 And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from Isaiah 8.14. Then still in verse 8, he builds on that. On the, the stumbling. Those who stumble... Uh, because of their rejecting the cornerstone that Christ is. Verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the Word, which is the call to receive the revelation of the gospel that God provided in Jesus, the the refusal uh, to receive the truth of the gospel and refusal to repent. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. In biblical times, a cornerstone was used as the foundation on which a building was constructed. And once in place, the rest of the building would conform and align with the cornerstone. So if the cornerstone were removed, the entire structure would collapse, wouldn't hold up. And that's exactly what Jesus provides. That's what he is. He is the cornerstone that that everything else rests rests on and depends on. Uh, He is foundational. And Peter is describing here those who had encountered and examined and evaluated the living stone that God had provided, Jesus. The only unchanging source of absolute stability that can provide a secure, eternal salvation. That's what Jesus is. It's what he was. It's what he is. But Peter is saying here, but they rejected him. They had this opportunity. They encountered him, the living stone. They examined him. They evaluated him. But they rejected him. They weighed him and found him wanting and worthless. Why? Why did they do that? because he did not match their preconceived idea of what the Messiah should be like. He didn't match what they wanted him to be like. Remember, they were expecting this conquering warrior king to ride in and throw out Rome. They expected Jesus to be this this triumphant warrior, setting everything right. They wanted him to establish a political empire. They wanted him to deliver them from Rome and put Israel back on the map and restore them to prominence. He didn't match that. He didn't fit that mold. And so they rejected him. That's why it happened. He didn't match what they thought he should be like or what they wanted him to be like, and so they rejected. And the same thing happens now every single day. When Jesus doesn't match the mold of what people want him to be, they reject him. When Jesus doesn't match what people think that he should be like or what he should offer them, when he fails to deliver what they were expecting him to deliver, they reject him. What about you? What version of Jesus are you looking to? What version of Jesus are you worshiping? Have you built up this picture of Jesus in your mind and in your life that has, is not in any way the Jesus of the Word? Or are you looking at and bowing your, your whole life before the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Are you, are you matching your perspective according to who He really is? Are you aligning your life according to him and to the reality that he is, or is it the other way around? What Jesus are you serving and worshiping and looking for? Make sure it's the real one. And verse 8 makes it clear that the result of the Jews' rejection of Jesus was to stumble over him and be judged. He's become to those that, that did not believe, that did not re- receive him, that rejected him, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, which was prophesied and said would happen, was part of God's sovereign plan that that would indeed take place, that the, that the, uh, the authorities and the leaders, the builders of the nation, so to speak, would reject the cornerstone, and, and instead of becoming, in their minds, precious and, and important and unique as he should be, they rejected him. And he makes clear that that stumbling over him was part of God's plan all along, and and that as a result of that, they would be judged. They were appointed to judgment. But this was not limited to the Jews. This is the destiny of every person in every age that rejects Jesus as the one and only Savior. This is the destiny for every single person that does that. Every person that rejects Jesus and tries to build on some other type of stone, every single person that that does not see Jesus as the cornerstone that he alone is and looks to something else or someone else, this destiny is theirs as well. Stumbling over the one they rejected. Instead of something precious, something that is an offense and something that will ultimately crush them. That is the the sad reality of those that reject Jesus. So, what does all this mean for us? All of this that Peter is conveying, all the pointing back to the Old Testament and, and showing how he is that cornerstone that was prophesied and pointed to by Isaiah, by David. How did it apply to his readers there in the first century, and how does it apply to us today? Well, there's two things that I want to point out that this means for us. They're connected uh, to, to truths, to realities. The first, in light of all of this, is that what we believe about Jesus determines everything about us. What we believe about Jesus determines everything about us. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. It's one of the best books ever written. I would encourage you all to read it at some point if you haven't. Uh, Truly one of his greatest works, if not the greatest. And he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is, Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You've heard that in some form, probably. Yeah, Jesus is a great guy. Jesus was an excellent moral example. In fact, many, most even, most of the world's religions will accept that. They'll say that. Islam holds Jesus up as a holy prophet, and so many other religions and and uh, different philosophies have no problem saying Jesus is special. Sure, he's even holy, but they stop short of saying he's God. So, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man capital M, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We must make our choice. What we believe about Jesus determines everything about us. The other truth that all of this that Peter is conveying and and showing us, the other truth that we should take away and that this means for us is, is this, and it relates to that first one. If the foundation of our life, I said that what we believe about Jesus, you know, affects and determines everything about us. So if the foundation of our life is built on anything other than Jesus, if we don't believe that he is everything he says he is, it will always fall apart if the foundation of our life is built on anything other than Jesus, it will always fall apart. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've been religious throughout your life. Maybe you've been morally good compared to a lot of other people. Maybe you even know Bible verses and sing the same songs. And yet, you just can't figure out why your life still seems to crumble all the time. Why you can't get it together. Why can't my life seem to hold together? Why does it feel like no matter what I do, no matter what I try, I'm just always crumbling? And everything's just falling apart. Well, here's why. My, my answer to that question would be, you probably are building your foundation, the foundation of your life and everything you are, on something other than Jesus. It's not enough to build your foundation on a religious experience. It's not enough to build the foundation of your life on coming to church. It's not enough to build your foundation on being good. You have to build the foundation of your life on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Because everything else will fall apart. And Jesus himself said that. Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 27 he said this, Matthew seven twenty four through 27, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, that's key, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Which one are you? Which foundation have you built on? With all that in mind, turning back to First Peter, two verses nine through ten, we're going to see a striking contrast, and what this will be done a striking contrast. So we we saw that Jesus is the cornerstone, Christ the cornerstone. Now we're going to see this striking contrast between what he just had had said about those that rejected the cornerstone. You know, he said those that that rejected Jesus as the cornerstone, now he became a, a stumbling block for them. He's not the cornerstone they're building their life on, and so now they're going to stumble over him, and they're going to be judged because of their rejection. Their judgment was appointed. All who reject Christ are appointed to judgment. But here's this wonderful, beautiful, amazing contrast. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, That's something that was introduced in Exodus 19. That was God's plan for Israel. He said, I want to make you a a kingdom of priests, a royal house of priests to serve me and bring other people to me and represent me to the whole world. That's what I want for you, Israel. But they dropped the ball big time again and again and again and again. They failed. And as a nation, Israel rejected their king, Jesus, as he came to them. And yet he's saying, that's what you are. What was introduced in Exodus 19, what was God's plan for Israel, now it's come to fruition, it's come to fulfillment. You're part of that. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And here's this phrase that the whole series is built on. A people for his own possession, which in the KJV is a peculiar people. A people for his own possession. That's what is true of you, Peter is saying. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Jews that are dispersed from Israel all throughout Asia Minor, but he's also writing to the Gentiles. What Peter is saying here is, hey, you Jewish Christians, though the nation of Israel failed and didn't live up to this and rejected Christ, rejected their royal priesthood, In Christ, that's restored to you. And hey, you Gentiles who were not part of that plan originally, you were excluded. You were not part of of being God's chosen people. You weren't part of that royal priesthood under the old covenant. Guess what? Now through Christ, you too are a chosen race. You too are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You too are a people for His own possession. Hallelujah. That's you and me. We were included in to what had previously only been true of Israel. And because they rejected the gospel and they rejected the Messiah, that rejection, Paul talks about this in Romans, was used by God to bring us in. We were grafted in to the tree. So this is what's true of you. And me, if we're in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And what's the purpose of all that? What is the, the implication? What's the, the point of us being those things? It's in the next phrase. That, see, that, that's, that's the descriptive there. That's the, what, what totally follows after all those things that are true. That you may proclaim The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. Wow. We know we're not worthy of all that. We know we're not worthy, and yet that's true of us because of Christ. What does that mean for us? Last thing, because of what has been made true of us, here's the takeaway Jesus didn't just save us from hell, He saved us so we could point others to Him, so we could proclaim. It's what is said there in verse 9 that we may proclaim, shout. The excellencies of Him who did all this. Who called us out of darkness and into His light that we didn't deserve. We're supposed to be this megaphone shouting of the goodness and grace of our God. We're supposed to be this big spotlight not shining on ourselves, but shining on Him. Jesus didn't just save us from hell. He saved us so we would point others to Him. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? it's what we're called to. Praise God for what he has made us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, the relevance of it, the truth of it. Thank you for showing us how Jesus is our cornerstone. May he be that for in our lives in every aspect. May we build our, our, our lives, the foundation of our lives, on nothing else, on no one else. And may we proclaim, as Peter said, is the natural response or the result of what has been true of us. May we proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for what you've done. And thank you for the power and the ability to live differently because of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.